good to see you all, friends. And thank you, Chris, for reading that passage. It seemed very long, but uh, it came across as very long. When I chose it, it didn't seem long. It was a great passage. Um, we are just uh, halfway through, as, pre as Chris said, our, our series on holiness, um, loosely guided by J.C. Ryle on book, his book on holiness. And so far, we've covered conflict. Seems very relevant. We've covered cost, uh, and we, we covered, we've covered grace. And still to come, in coming weeks, we have penitence, power, and destiny, which all sound great themes. But today we have a really magnificent theme, which is assurance. And now J.C. Ryle's book is worth reading, but I've taken much of what I will say from 1 John, which Chris, of which Chris read apart, which is kind of really the Bible's manifesto on assurance. The idea of knowing that we know these things are true that we talk about. Um, and it has been a real privilege over the past couple of weeks, as the world has descended into mayhem and chaos, to be able to reflect on the Bible's teaching on assurance. And there's such a contrast between the chaos of the world, the uncertainty of the world, and the clarity and certainty that we get in Scripture. It's been a real privilege. So I hope I'll bring a little bit of that to you. Um, so, bear with me. Mixed up. Oh, here we are. Sorry. So, I, I will get to properly to assurance in a minute, but I want to begin with something which is um, chronologically and conceptually prior to assurance, which is belief. Okay. So, what is it that we, as a church, this is the question I ask at first, as a community, what is it that we believe? And and I'll list some of the things that. And you may have a different list, but these, this, is, this, this is the list I came up with. And we believe, as a church, that the universe did not spring spontaneously into existence, but was created. We believe that God made the universe good, but that it has fallen, and that the human race is in a kind of rebellion against God. And we see the evidence of that rebellion everywhere we look. We also believe that God being a God of love... He was not content to let us remain in that state. And we believe he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, into the universe that he had made to die and to take the punishment for the wrong that we do. And we believe that in that way, God made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And we believe that by doing nothing more than placing our trust in him, our relationship with God can be restored. And more than that, we believe that we can become children of God citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we believe that those who accept this offer are called to live a life of service to others and that on the last day we will inherit a kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world now we believe these things these really momentous claims i think you'll agree but do we know that these things are true and are they anything more than mere beliefs or hopes or conjectures or theories or hypotheses about, what the, what, about, about things? Are they, are they more than that? Because belief is a wonderful thing. Every parent believes that their child is the most saintly, angelic child, even, even when confronted with all the evidence to the you know, opposite conclusion. Every football fan believes that this, this year their team could make it to the finals of the, of the FA Cup 
Um, and every day when I go to London, I believe that this day I'm going to get there. At 8.30, I'll be at my desk. It, it, the reality is that every day at five past nine, I slink in, slink in uh, hoping that I've not been, nobody's noticed that I'm, I'm a bit late again. You see, we can believe all sorts of things. And indeed, we even read in the Bible that even the demons believe and tremble. So mere belief is not, is not where we are aiming at, I suggest, in the end. So the question is, can we go further? Can we know that the, these we believe claims that I, I, I described just now are true? And, and being true means two things. One, that they correspond to objective reality. So that they describe something real, that Jesus really did come, that there really is a kingdom that we'll inherit, that we really can become children of God. And second, and this is, where, this is what assurance is, is can we know that these things that are objectively true are subjectively true of us? That we will be those who inherit the kingdom of inherit the kingdom. And, and that is what assurance is. It's to know that our wrongdoing is forgiven, that we will be among those raised on the last day, that we are reconciled to God, that we will reign with him, and that we know that we know these things. So does the Bible support that stronger set of claims? I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but I'm going to suggest that it does. Um, just now, Chris read uh, 1 John 4, and I'll just, I'm going to run through some Bible passages which I suggest tell us that we can know these things. They're not mere beliefs or theories or hypo- hypotheses or conjectures. So Chris read 1 John 4:13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And, then, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And 1 John 5. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And then a little bit further on, Chris didn't get this far, but 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, Further on still, 19, we know that we are children of God. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. I mean, it, John is, as I say, he's so emph- emphatic on this. And he's, it, this is why we, you, you can call it his book, One John, the Manifesto of Assurance. But it, it's not just him. Go back to the words of Jesus. And, and when Jesus prayed once, he prayed this. He prayed, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then the other biblical writer, so Peter, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And then Peter exhorts the the readers of the message, make every effort to add to your faith Goodness, and to goodness, knowledge. Uh, Paul, it's similarly emphatic. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In 1 Thessalonians 1, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, uh, one, one more from the New Testament. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. 
and, and it's in the Old Testament too. So the most famous verse in Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and, in the, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And these are just a fraction uh, of the knowing passages in Scripture. And there are, of course, on top of these things, all the passages and the teachings that entail knowledge, that, 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 that suggest we must have knowledge. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he doesn't go to prepare a place just in case we make it there. He prepares, he doesn't waste his time like that. He prepares because he knows that your arrival is certain. And uh, Ephesians 1, I'll, one more passage on this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So it talks of promises, seals, guarantees, and I could go on, but it should be clear that the entire thrust of Scripture is towards knowledge, not mere belief, theory, hypothesis, conjecture, or simple hope. It's about knowledge, certainty, and assurance. We know that we know is the Bible's teaching. And, and perhaps, you know, we could kind of stop here and just have learned something and have reflected on something, but I think we can go further because and consider those who say that who would, who, who would deny this knowledge because there are such people and there are three main groups and who when you assert that this is knowledge you quickly run into opposition and the first so I'll go through three the first is what we might call the secular intelligentsia although that name perhaps flatters them and you will have met them and these are the people who will graciously grant us belief as long as those beliefs are privately and quietly held. But if we maintain that we know these things, that they are objectively true, that as Christians we know things both that happened in the deep past and that will happen in the far future about the origins and destiny of humankind, about God and his intervention in the world, and we say that this is knowledge, that they will not accept. And what they will say is, come on, what evidence is there for these outlandish claims? Is this not just wishful thinking and the product of overactive imaginations? And they might say that we as Christians, we don't meet the scrupulous standards found, for instance, in science. We don't do much hypothesizing and testing and evidence gathering. Our claims, these claims that we make, they're not peer-reviewed like scientific claims. And yet we still maintain that we know, that we have certainty, that we have assurance. Well, what is our response to that? Well, I think that these sorts of arguments should encourage us to go back to Scripture and think carefully, not only about what we know, but about how we know it. And there are two, two things you can do in response to these kinds of evidence-demanding uh, challenges. And the first is kind of take the bait and to play the evidence game. And if you do that, and, and to try to provide evidence for Christian belief, and if you do that, you're in good company. Um, 1 John begins this way. So the first, the opening sentence of 1 John, John is exactly this. So he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So he's really, he's focusing on evidence. But, and there are many other good books that set out to show, I mean, not, you know, extra, non-biblical books, books available in bookshops now, which, a, which set out to show that there is evidence to, su to support the claims we make. 
But as I say, John 1, 1 John starts in that way, but it does not continue in that way. He quickly moves beyond evidence. And perhaps for this reason, the problem with evidence, that it can ever only be provisional. There can always be more evidence, disproving evidence. It's true until proven otherwise. That's how science works. And, and that's why science is provisional, always provisional, always waiting for something different to come along, uh, uh, something more accurate, a more accurate model. Um, but the Bible doesn't, doesn't it, it, the claims that I've read, I don't, they don't have the ring to me of provisional claims, true until something else comes along that's more true. They, they're much stronger than that. We are offered certainty, knowledge, assurance. So how does it work? How do we have this? this certainty, this knowledge and assurance. Well, um, as I said, 1 John begins with the evidence, but he quickly moves beyond to a much greater source of certainty for our beliefs. Uh, and so listen to what he says in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. And shortly after, in verse 27, uh, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it was taught you, remain in him. So, the question then is, who is this Holy One who gives us this anointing, this anointing that teaches us all things? And of course, the answer is, it is the Holy Spirit. And the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture throughout uh, is that belief and knowledge and assurance, all of these things are gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, if you'll forgive me for going back to you know, a list of Bible verses again, remember what, what Jesus said. So, in John 14, one of his followers asked him, Lord, why do you show yourselves to us and not to the world? And in his answer, Jesus says that, The words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And then Jesus makes a promise. He says, All this have I, I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So that's Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit coming. Uh, other biblical writers pick up the same thing. So uh, Paul, Romans 8, 15, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 1 Thessalonians 1, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I've already read this one. Because our, cos our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And in our passage today, uh, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And a little further on, it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. So the Bible's teaching is unequivocal, that the Holy Spirit is the source of our conviction, our assurance, and our knowledge of these, the we believe claims that I set out at the beginning. So, getting more practical about it, what does it mean in practice for the Holy Spirit? Spirit to teach us? Um, what does it feel like when the Holy Spirit teaches you? Um, and so I'm, I'm going to read to you a passage from a, a Christian philosopher who, who 
called Alvin Plantinga, who he describes the experience of being taught by the Holy Spirit. And I hope that you recognize some of this. I think you will. So he says this. This is what it's like. We read scripture or something presenting scriptural teaching or hear the gospel preached or are told of it by parents or encounter scriptural teaching as a conclusion of an argument or conceivably even as an object of ridicule and what is said simply seems right. It seems compelling. One finds oneself saying, yes, that's right, that's the truth of the matter. This is indeed the word of the Lord. I read, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I come to think, right, that's true. God really was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And I may also think something about that proposition, that it is a divine teaching or revelation that it is from God. And uh, one last bit. He says, or perhaps the conviction arises slowly and only after long and hard study, thought, discussion, prayer. Or perhaps it is a matter of beliefs having been there all along, from childhood perhaps, but now being transformed, renewed, intensified, made vivid and alive. This process can go on in a thousand ways. Um, I, I don't know if you recognize that. I f that, feels, that feels like something I've experienced. Uh, I'll give you another example, slightly uh, more exciting maybe. John Wesley, famous passage in his diary about, well, whether it was when he became a Christian or whether it, when he was given assurance, it's kind of unclear, but he describes one Sunday evening in his diary. John Wesley's kind of 300 years ago. He says, in the evening... I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, he means a church, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine, and save me from the law of sin and death. Now, you know, he's a great writer, but I think that there are probably in this room maybe a hundred people, I haven't counted, who, who can describe something like this happening, you know? Uh, and that is why we don't, as Christians, talk that much about evidence. It's because we have something better, which is the direct witness of the Holy Spirit. And that is why we don't get our claims peer-reviewed, as scientists do. As John says, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater. Okay, and so getting more practical still, uh, we have looked at how the Holy Spirit testifies to us. How do we access the testimony of the Holy Spirit? How do we, how do, we do this? How do we get this insight from the Holy Spirit? And again, 1 John has an answer for us, 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So we ask for it. It's kind of as simple as that. I suggest that's where to begin. Um, I have just two, two or three more things to say. It take about five or six minutes. I have, so I've described one set of opponents of the teaching of assurance from outside the church. But there's another set, a second set of opponents of the Bible's teaching of assurance uh, from inside the church, we, or we might call them the religious establishment, because there are people who call themselves religious, 
but who deny that we know we, we, we will be saved. They deny that we know we will be raised on the last day. They deny that we know that we will inherit kingdom prepared. And they deny these things because they teach that heaven is something we must, must earn and that we cannot know until the last day whether we have done enough to earn it or to use, a Christian, to use some Christian jargon about it. They, teach, they don't teach a gospel of free grace, which I think we believe in here, but they teach a gospel of good deeds. And they fear, perhaps, that if you give someone assurance, then you also give them a license to do whatever they like, to live their life in, in any, whichever wild way they choose. But as J.C. Ryle makes so clear in his passage on this, the Bible teaches the precise opposite of this. Assurance doesn't destroy the holiness in your life. Knowing that you're going to go to heaven doesn't destroy the holiness in your life. It strengthens and accelerates it. And J.C. Riley has this image. His wonderful image. He says, imagine two people have been given a piece of land. One is confident that the piece of land they've been given is theirs. Uh, they own the title to it. It's, it's theirs and will be theirs forever. The other person who's been given a piece of land uh, is not confident that they own it. They, they can't quite believe it. They're always rushing to the land registry to check whether they really own the piece of land or not. And so J.C. Ryle asks, which of these people, the, the confident person or the unconfident person in their ownership of the land, will make that piece of land mo more fruitful? Um, and clearly, it's the one who is confident in their ownership. They will be the ones who make the land more fruitful. They will be more invested in it. They will you know, be more, uh, less distracted and more focused on that piece of land. The one who doesn't know if they own the piece of land will be more... Will be unsure whether they should invest in it. And it's the same with holiness. If you know you're going to heaven, if you have assurance, if you're confident in these things, then it gives you a reason to invest in your, in your assurance and your spiritual life. So that's the con connection between, or one of the main connections between assurance and holiness. That assurance will breed holiness. If we, if we know that we know, it breeds holiness. So, one last point. Um, there is a third group of of people who will say you, who will deny your assurance, who will rob you of the assurance and the confidence and the knowledge that the Bible gives you. And while the first two groups are not, I think, very influential in this church, the third group is, and that's because it's us, okay? So we often rob ourselves of the certainty and the assurance that God holds out to us, as we've seen really clearly, I think, in the Bible. And it, so before I dismiss you know, th this, this tendency, I think we need to take it slightly more seriously because, as Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so, with these kind of passages in mind, it, it suggests it's a serious question. Do, do these things really apply to me? It's not, it's not a light question to ask. But I think that we can get hung up on it. Um, and, and, do, and it can become a, a thing that robs us of the confidence and assurance which the Bible uh, promises us and says that we're offered. So one thing that one John does, which is so precious and so valuable, is that he tells us how we can know that we can know. And this is kind of the concluding point. He says there are three signs, uh, and you can use them in 
considering whether you really are, you know, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And and th- and they should, if you're, if you feel, if you feel, like if you, you lose your confidence, you worry late at night that how can this? Do, am I really saved? Am I really part of this? You know, community that will inherit a, a kingdom from prepared for them before the foundation of the world. And he says there are three ways you can know that that is that you are in that community. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And he sets them out repeatedly throughout one John, uh, again and again and again. And so the passage which Chris read, I chose it because it, in it he mentions all three, but they're mentioned perhaps better in other parts. But you can you can go and read that. But, but going back to the passage, so three signs we can look for on ourselves. First is 1 John 4, verse 7. So he says, he says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And a little bit later on, verse 16, God is love, Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So that's the first sign that that we're saved, if you like, that we have love, that we love one another. The second sign is this, uh, 1 John 4 verse 15 If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And then at the start of chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So the second sign, which we've just seen, is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is born of God. And precisely what that means, of course, is a big subject, and it occupies most of the New Testament. But that is the sign, you know, that you, that you believe that Jesus is born of God, that Jesus is the Christ. So that's, that's one. So we've done love and belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, three, third sign, finally. This is the, the, the other sign to look for, the final one. This is how, so 1 John 5, verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. And it may not be fully you know, clear in that passage. It's made more clear elsewhere in 1 John, but, it, but this is, I want, as I say, I wanted a passage which included them all. This is the third sign. We are those who keep God's commands. So, Three signs. One, uh, that should give us confidence. One, that we're people who love one another. Two, that we're people who believe that Jesus is the Christ. And three, we are people who, who obey God's commands. Now, unless you're, and this may have made you feel even more nervous if you also think, well, I don't do those things perfectly. I'm not perfectly loving. I don't, my faith in Jesus is not perfect. I don't perfectly obey. Well, John addresses that as well, and he's, he's really clear that it's not that we obey these things per- perfectly, but it's, it, is, it is that the, we are being, it is working in us. Uh, it's, it, the sign is that we try, that, we, that we, we try and love one another. We prioritize this. We, we, 
we focus ever more on Jesus and, and our faith in him, that we, we strive to obey his commands. And then, meanwhile, remember uh, what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. So God will make us, and God will make us perfect in love in the end. Jesus will perfect our faith. He himself will speak to God in our defense when we get these things wrong. So, so there we have it. Uh, assurance and in summary uh, I'll just say remember that the claims on which we stand are not mere beliefs they are things we know okay it is the Holy Spirit who instills that knowledge in us that assurance is made possible by the gospel of free grace and we know that there are three tests which we can return to and examine ourselves to prove our status as children of God one that we love Two, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And three, that we strive to obey. And that's it. So I'll, usually I pray at this point, but I, I think that perhaps what we could do is sing our last hymn as our prayer, um, which is a classic sort of assurance hymn. Ch- uh, verse two, under the shadow of your throne, your, de- your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone. And our defense is sure. Thank you.